Welcome to Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hello, everyone. Great to be back. And Haley Knopf. Hey, Amber and Alex. Jam-packed show today, guys. I'm excited that as our main segment today, we have Rachel Scharf on the show, who's one of our New York court reporters and followed the whole Sam Bankman-Fried trial. So we get into that, what it means for crypto, how that all played out some startling testimony on the stand. So really fun to break down that trial. Yeah, we're always lucky to have Rachel on the show and she crushed the coverage on that trial from start to finish. So we'll do a little cleanup on that from last week. But before that, there is some interesting news to get to and we will start off back on my beloved sports beat where a massive antitrust class action against the NCAA, the college sports governing body, There have been some fascinating developments in that case in recent weeks, most notably a decision this very week that could put the NCAA on the hook for billions of dollars worth of damages uh, if the case goes in a way that past cases against it have gone. I really appreciate it when you bring a sports story to Pro Se that I am indeed interested in following. Antitrust ones are pretty juicy in this way. The NCAA is so big and ubiquitous. They've been sued a gazillion times over a bunch of different things. So which one is this? Yeah, you can spin a wheel and just talk about any number of you know pending legal actions against the NCAA. And the one you hear about the most, which is taking place on a couple of different uh, in a couple of different forums, is the effort by college athletes to be treated like employees and and be paid a fair wage for their labor. Now, the case we're talking about today is not about wages, but it is still related to compensation for student-athletes. And what we're talking about specifically are the NCAA's restrictions on athletes' ability to earn money from their name, image, and likeness, which is uh, in the sports law parlance that's known as NIL rights. And now for years, the NCAA straight up prevented athletes from earning any NIL money. And when we're talking about that, name, image, and likeness rights, that's got nothing to do with being paid for your on-field labor. That's just to do with whether you want to get paid for doing autograph signings, advertisements, appearance fees. This is all off the court, off the field type of stuff. And for years, for decades, that was completely banned under NCAA rules. And you could be punished by being expelled from your team or your program could be banned from postseason play, stuff like that. It's a huge deal. So... A bunch of current and former college athletes sued in 2020, arguing that that rule restricting NIL earnings is pretty plainly anti-competitive. And the case had some immediate ripple effects, as the NCAA somewhat abruptly, hastily, some would say, changed its policies to allow for NIL earnings just a few months after the case was filed. But the case has, that that didn't resolve it, the case has uh, surged ahead as athletes seek more permanent changes to the policy and to, and to sort of firm it up a little bit more and more crucially push for back pay, money that they would have earned for years and years had those restrictions not been in place. So that's what we're talking about in this suit. Yeah, it is a very interesting new world that we're in here because I do, as a sports fan, I can remember so many we would call them back in the day scandals where, yeah. you know, some some student athlete got in trouble for something like that. So what have been the most recent developments here? Well, to put it briefly, the athletes have had a lot of early success in this case. So last month, California Judge Claudia Wilkin 
certified a class of 184,000 current and former athletes that are seeking injunctive relief. And that just means a permanent change to the NCAA's NIL policies that frees them up to market themselves without fear of NCAA punishments. And that was a huge deal because that's a huge class of people, as you probably put together. But this week, we saw even bigger news as Judge Wilkins certified three more classes that total over 14,000 members that are seeking damages. So now we're moving past just injunctive relief and talking about we need the money that we lost out on because of your rules. And if the plaintiffs are successful, uh, a class of that size could force the NCAA to shell out tens of billions of dollars in the coming years. And depending on how broadly a court could rule, could really reshape the way that money is distributed throughout all NCAA sports. Just to be more specific here, the damages claims cover three different categories. They cover the NIL restrictions that were in place prior to this NCAA rule change. They cover uh, locking players out of compensation that they would have received if the NCAA had allowed their likenesses to appear in video games. And then the third one is really the big one, and the one that's getting a lot of eyeballs in this case, um, which are rules that are still in place now that prevent the athletic conferences from sharing broadcast revenues with the players. And that the reason that that's of such crucial focus here is because even with the NCAA relaxing its NIL restrictions, players are still seeing no cut of those extremely lucrative broadcasting rights. Um, now, the NCAA does not consider the broadcasts to be an NIL issue. The players have a different view on that. They see their name, their image, and likenesses as crucial elements for the appeal of televised college sports. They basically say, if we, the athletes, weren't out there, no one would watch. So uh, we deserve a cut of that money. And that is why that is really coming into focus as the key issue here. We've got some big stakes in this one, which is very interesting. But I did say earlier that there's a bunch of sort of related suits and a lot going on with the NCAA. Can you situate this in that broader picture? How does this play out with other things that the league is facing? Yeah, so the NCAA, just to kind of clean up this specific suit, the NCAA has said that it disagrees with the judge's class cert and has held the door open for possibly appealing. But those kind of class cert appeals tend to be a little bit of a long shot. Appeals courts generally, not always, but generally tend to prefer to hear completed cases before they start weeding into class cert and things like that. But as far as the bigger picture goes, all of this is taking place against the backdrop of the Supreme Court's 2021 ruling in a case called Alston versus the NCAA. Now, that case did not have to do with NIL rights, but it was actually a much narrower issue. It was, it was to do with the NCAA's restrictions on non-cash items given to players, like computers and supplies and like merchandise and things like that. Now, again, that's, that was a, a, a very small slice of money at stake there, but the opinion in that case has been a game changer throughout college sports. It was a unanimous decision, nine to nothing. And, you know, even though it was about this one small issue, it came with this full-on rebuke of the NCAA's entire business model. And Justice Brett Kavanaugh wrote for the court there. And again, keep in mind, this is just about whether you can give a computer to a kid who's an athlete. But this is what he wrote. 
Nowhere else in America can businesses get away with agreeing not to pay their workers a fair market rate on the theory that their product is defined by not paying their workers a fair market rate. And under ordinary principles of antitrust law, it is not evident why college sports should be any different. The NCAA is not above the law. So that is just a complete broadside at the entire model of how the NCAA has worked by saying that these are amateurs, these are not professionals, and therefore they shouldn't be paid. And through that specific lens of that case, it really sounds like all nine Supreme Court justices signed on to that, taking a pretty different view. And that specter hangs over almost every single NCAA lawsuit, whether it's this NIL case or the push, there is a push at Dartmouth right now. Uh, the men's basketball team is, uh, has petitioned the NLRB to form a union. That is in the early stages as well. The fear of another smackdown from the Supreme Court, if it should get that far, is pretty likely to accelerate settlement talks on the NCAA's uh, behalf. But when you're dealing with classes and damages estimates of this size, there's really no telling how that could shake out. And as this NIL case trudges forward, it's going to be very interesting to see how the NCAA reacts with that kind of sort of Damocles of another Supreme Court review hanging over its head. Fascinating stuff, Alex. Uh, as we mentioned, we you know love a good NCAA fight here. I want us to kind of stick with the Supreme Court. This week, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in a case challenging a federal law prohibiting people who are subject to domestic violence restraining orders from owning firearms. And the justices mostly seemed skeptical of the Fifth Circuit's finding that the law violates the Second Amendment. This is obviously a very sensitive issue for a lot of people, um, a very important issue. But just from a legal standpoint, this is also a really big one to watch because it's the first gun rights case to land before the high court since they laid out a new test for determining whether a gun regulation is constitutional. Yeah, this was in our preview of the Supreme Court term as one to watch. So I am interested in what we learned from these oral arguments. I sort of will admit I thought the Supreme Court had gone really pretty far in supporting the Second Amendment. So the pushback here was a bit surprising to me. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that in a second. But first, maybe we can reset people with the facts of this particular case. Yeah. So the suit was filed by a Texas man, Zaki Rahimi, who was indicted for having a firearm while under a domestic violence restraining order that barred him from harassing, stalking, or threatening his ex-girlfriend and their child. That order also explicitly prohibited him from having a gun. A few more noteworthy details on the circumstances of his conviction. Rahimi was involved in five shootings between December 2020 and January 2021. Prosecutors said that he shot at other drivers and individuals to whom he sold narcotics. And in one instance, he fired shots into the air after his friend's credit card was declined at a fast food restaurant. The district court refused to throw out his conviction, and the Fifth Circuit initially refused as well. But then came the Supreme Court's landmark decision last year. We should reset there, I think, because I remember that that case was something of a jolt for a lot of active gun cases. So can you remind us what the Supreme Court ruled last year and how it plays into how it feeds into the case that's before the court now. In the decision we're talking about here, the Supreme Court majority held that a New York law restricting carry licenses to only those who can show 
quote, proper cause was unconstitutional. It's an extremely consequential decision because it essentially expanded the Second Amendment's reach to beyond the home for the first time. Specifically, it requires the government to show that its restrictions on gun possession have roots in the historical record dating to the time that the Second Amendment was ratified. And that was, uh, if you don't have this memorized, 1791. So turning back to Rahimi's case, the big question here is, does this Supreme Court decision also render the domestic violence gun prohibition unconstitutional? And earlier this year, the Fifth Circuit said yes. A side note here, this is a, a testament to, again, the relentless passage of time and uh, how many stories we churn out here at Law 360 because I covered this Fifth Circuit decision and I didn't remember that until I pulled up the story today. Oh, that's the so, old Law 360 amnesia. That happens all the time. Yeah, exactly. Definitely, definitely. So in this case, or in this decision that I covered, the Fifth Circuit reversed the Texas federal court's decision upholding the prohibition. And here's a quote from the Fifth Circuit. The question presented in this case is not whether prohibiting the possession of firearms by someone subject to a domestic violence restraining order is a laudable policy goal. The question is whether a specific statute that does so is constitutional under the Second Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. So specifically, the panel here said that under the new Supreme Court precedent, the prohibition isn't something our ancestors would have accepted back in 1791. That's an interesting way for them to interpret it, but it doesn't seem like the Supreme Court maybe is on board with that interpretation of their precedent. So what did we learn about the Supreme Court's thinking here? That's right. As you mentioned earlier, it's kind of, it might be a little surprising to some how skeptical the justices really were here. But at oral arguments on Tuesday, the majority of justices asked questions that seemed to suggest, even under this new precedent, the prohibition is constitutional. And that included two of the most pro-gun rights justices, Samuel Alito and Clarence Thomas. Even they were like, mm, not sure about this. So the arguments mostly focused on the concept of danger and what kind of process must be in place before a person can be barred from having a firearm while a threat to a domestic partner. Notably, the justices seem to be concerned about possible challenges to other provisions of the federal gun possession statute that is used to disarm people convicted of felonies or people who are mentally ill. Um, the justices really pressed Rahimi's lawyer on how his argument would apply to these other contexts. And he kind of seemed to struggle a little bit. And the justices really called him out on backtracking. One of the things that they called him out on was he cited a precedent that, or he cited a time period that was actually after 1791 and they were like, wait, 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 that's contradictory to what you're arguing here. Chief Justice Roberts also seemed to be hunting for weak spots in his argument. And I wanted to highlight kind of a, an entertaining exchange here. So Justice Roberts asked, are you suggesting if there's a sufficient showing of dangerousness, that can be a basis for disarming, even with respect to possession in the home? To the extent that's pertinent, you don't have any doubt that your client's a dangerous person, do you? And when the lawyer asked what, quote, being a dangerous person meant, Roberts uh, answered very dryly uh, and everyone laughed. And he said, well, it means someone who's shooting, you know, at people. That's a good start, uh, which, Ouch. of course, is 
a callback to the the underlying details of this of this case. But so, you know, it'll be interesting to see how the court rules. And as I mentioned, this is just the first of several gun cases to come before the court. So this is a very important one to watch. Hello, my name is Seth Nwosu. And my name is Dr. Cambria Nwosu. And, and together, together we, we form Seth UC for Nwosu Incorporated, Sun Inc. Sun Inc. is a provider of non-attorney legal services, as well as certified paralegal services and legal document repair services. Our non-attorney service offerings include legal research, dot prep, litigation assistance, and litigation support. Our services are for individuals, businesses, attorneys, law firms, as well as government agencies. As a legal nurse consultant, I provide nursing expertise through medical record review. I provide my nursing expertise as well as my trained eye to view gaps in the medical record or any issues that can be used in a court of law. Sunic is your one stop for all your legal service needs. Contact us today to schedule a consultation. You can visit us at sunnycorp.net or give us a call at 973-932-6031. Again, that's sunnycorp.net or call us at 973-932-6031. Sunnyc is your one stop for all of your non-attorney legal service needs. Late last week, a Manhattan federal jury convicted FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried on charges that he defrauded customers who placed billions of dollars with the now-shuttered cryptocurrency exchange. The verdict caps a month-long trial into Bankman-Fried's actions. And every step of the way, our own Law360 court reporters have been there, including our guest this week, Rachel Scharf, who is in a courtroom hallway as we speak. Rachel, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Rachel, it's so nice to have you. Uh, I know we're catching you between other trials and, and court action that you're covering, but I want to dive into all of this crypto stuff that's going on with Sam Bankman-Fried. It's been so interesting. Before we dive into what happened at that trial, let's just remind our listeners of who Sam Bankman-Fried was and what crimes he was accused of. So Sam Bankman-Fried was the founder of FTX, which at one point was an extremely successful cryptocurrency exchange. He was a billionaire. Most of his colleagues uh, at the top of the company were billionaires. Um, he had built this really, really successful cryptocurrency exchange, uh, and things seemed to be going pretty well until November of last year, uh, when the company collapsed in a really spectacular fashion. Within a month, he was charged and arrested for essentially orchestrating a massive fraud. Prosecutors alleged that Essentially, he was commingling assets between FTX and his hedge fund, which was called Alameda Research, and that he was using money from FTX to fund that hedge fund, spend money on risky investments, real estate, political donations, and essentially draining close to $10 billion worth of customer funds that when customers went to get their money in a big bank run, all the money was gone. A lot of that seems like a pretty classic setup for fraud. The The unusual part here was the layering in of crypto. Um, but I want to hear about how that went down in at the actual trial. What were some of the standout moments? And in particular, I know Sam Bankman-Fried did take the stand. So I want to talk about that with you as well. Right. So Sam Bankman-Fried did testify. But before that, we heard testimony from three of his closest confidants three former top executives at FTX and Alameda, that crypto hedge fund, 
And those are all three cooperating witnesses for the government, which is uh, was pretty spectacular to see these three people all tell sort of the same story of how FTX unraveled. And so that was, you know, pretty blockbuster as well. And then by the time we got to the defense case, it was Bateman Freed's turn to take the stand and tell his version of the story. It was interesting, to say the least. Um, <laughs> I mean, he is known as a colorful character to begin with. So we kind of knew is. when he was going to be on the stand, it would be interesting. So it seems like those three testifying witnesses all said, yeah, he told us to shift money around. Mm-hmm. What did he say in response to that? How did, he, how did he sort of try to counterbalance? Right. So he got on the witness stand and he essentially said, as CEO, I was working at a really high level and the things that were going on with the details were sort of not my problem. And I kind of only looked at things from a high level and the lower down people, that was their deal. And whatever they did wasn't really something I was aware of. He also said that he was, while he was aware of some parts of it, for instance, he said he knew Alameda was borrowing money from FTX, but he always thought it was permissible borrowing based on the exchanges spot margin lending program, which is a lot of basically words to mean that he thought it was fine. On direct testimony, he was you know, he had a story that was prepared and laid out. On cross-examination, it got a little dicier. Uh, He was pretty evasive to the government's questioning. Um, He said, I don't recall, or some variation of that dozens and dozens of times. And so I don't think that served him very well. Yeah, let's dig more into that, Rachel. I know that you, after the, the trial was over, talked to experts about trial strategy here. And what the reaction was from court watchers to SBF taking the stand in this way. Was it a good idea? Was it a bad idea? What was the reaction of people who are outside of the case just looking in about the strategy? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say, obviously, for sure, because we don't, nobody was in the jury room. So we don't know exactly what the jury decided in terms of whether he was credible. But, you know, it was risky. It's really risky to take the stand like that because the way you're opened up on cross-examination to having to explain yourself and being confronted with things that you wouldn't otherwise have to be confronted with as a criminal defendant that, you know, exposes you. On the other hand, he really had the chance to tell his side of the story on direct. And it's a calculation. Basically, you have to decide, is it worth taking the risk of, you know, of exposing myself to cross-examinations that I can tell my piece on direct? And they're making free to somebody who took a lot of risk. You know, that was something that was explained throughout trial, you know, during there was one really interesting anecdote where Caroline Ellison, who was one of the cooperating witnesses, who was also his girlfriend at one point. So she had really, you know, probably the the clearest view into his intent. She told a story at one point during her testimony that, you know, Sam, she said, Sam once told me that he would happily flip a coin if heads, the world would become twice as good, but tails, the world would be destroyed. So he was somebody who took crazy risks, and that seems like something he did here. He took a big risk. He said, I'm going to testify. I'm going to tell my version of the story. And if it, you know, exposes me to a terrible outcome on cross-examination, so be it. And it seems like that's what happened. That coin flip story, Rachel, is so interesting. And I can see the allure of someone who is big risk, big reward to taking the stand. Obviously, this did not go in Sam Bankman-Fried's favor, But as with many of these kind of high-profile verdicts, there's an appeal process. Is that what we're wading into now? What is expected as next steps? Right. Well, the next step is post-trial motions and then sentencing. There is a little bit of 
gray area over whether there'll be another trial. He is actually subject to some additional charges that weren't brought at this trial because of some hairy extradition things having to do with the Bahamas. Um, so there might be another trial. Regardless, he'll probably be sentenced sometime in early 2024. And then, yes, there likely will be an appeal. Sam Bankman Freed's counsel has made clear that they intend to continue fighting this on appeal. You know, obviously, we don't know exactly what he's going to argue, although it's seemed throughout the trial that they were trying to tee up an appeal based on adverse rulings by the judge. The judge in this case, Judge Lewis Kaplan here in the Southern District, uh, really did box the defense in, in terms of what they were allowed to argue and what evidence they could introduce in their defense. For example, they wanted to introduce a series of expert witnesses that the judge precluded. Uh, in another example, they wanted to sort of try to shift blame to the lawyers who were present during a lot of these things. And the judge almost entirely blocked all that out of the trial. So it's likely on appeal that they'll argue that they didn't get a fair shot because their defense was boxed in too much and that they should have been able to, you know, put on a stronger defense and that they could have uh, won if they had been. What's the range of sentencing that we should be looking for during that phase? Yeah, it's hard to say. Obviously, you know, sentencing is a very particular decision that's up to a judge. Uh, He faces, I don't have the exact number on hand, but a very, very large maximum sentence. I believe it's close to 110 years, but it's very, very unlikely that he'll get the maximum sentence. You know, he's he was convicted on seven different counts that each, you know, carry their own terms. And sometimes a judge will sentence consecutively where they have to serve terms for each of those charges, but much more often they're sentenced uh, concurrently. So all the charges right. will be served at once. Um, so it's much more likely that he'll face something in the range of 20 to 30 years in prison. Still nothing to sneeze at there. That's a pretty lengthy term um, regardless. I am interested, just as sort of a final question for you, since you watched this whole trial and we're covering it so well for us, what has been the reaction now that it is complete? I'm interested in if this seems to court watchers as a uh, one-off where Sam Bankman-Fried had a very particular set of facts, or if this is a broader indictment of how the crypto world works. You know, I am a bit hesitant to say it's a broader indictment of the crypto industry as a whole, just because this alleged fraud, while, of course, as you mentioned early on, while, of course, the, the involved cryptocurrency and blockchains and all of that, it was actually quite an old-fashioned scheme. You know, it involved lying, allegedly, it involved alleged stealing. It was essentially your sort of typical pyramid scheme. And crypto was just sort of the mechanism that was used to perform that. And so I'm always hesitant to say in this case that it says something broader about the crypto industry. I think what it says is that prosecutors are looking at the crypto industry with the same scrutiny that they would bring to other financial crimes and other financial industries. And the, you know, that they have the expertise and the technology and the knowledge to uh, catch those things that, you know, I think in the crypto industry might be a little bit more concealed because they're being done with this new technology. But uh, that I think it, it seems like the Southern District of New York and other uh, federal prosecutors' offices are, are equipped to handle that. You know your industry has arrived when the prosecutors are able to take a good, solid look at the practices of everybody in that industry. Exactly. (laughs) 
Rachel, thank you so much for all of your coverage. If anybody wants to read more about it, they can check out your reporting at law360.com. Really appreciate you being on today. No problem. Thanks. We like to end our show with something offbeat, and I don't really have a legal news story for us here, but I do sometimes like to use this space to bring people inside the inner recesses of my mind. And sometimes when something prompts it, my legal reporter brain kicks in, and I just can't stop thinking about stuff like this. So we're kind of returning to the sports beat, if you'll indulge me, because this week, my beloved Chicago Cubs hired a new manager. It was something of a surprise. But the reason I'm bringing it up on Pro Se is because his name is Craig Council. Are you with me here, Amber? Okay. I'm very with you. Uh, This is like um, the the jurist that everybody learns about in law school, learned hand. You know what? Great. Oh, God. Great entry point. And of course, um, because I am not normal, I was like, can I ring a podcast segment out of this? And I wanted to just, this is, this is by no means an exhaustive list because this occurred to me about two hours ago when I was also doing something else. So by all means, I'm going to leave people out if you're interested. Uh, by all means, uh, add to this list. I wanted to just do a quick runaround of, to, the, to the various sports leagues about uh, legal names in the sports. I think in terms of current players, you would be hard-pressed to find someone more notable than Yankee slugger Aaron Judge. I think that's oh, good. Excellent. Right. That's pretty much a layup. I wrote a story last year when Aaron Judge broke the uh, American League home run record, and it was about the legal challenges that a person might face if they caught the ball. And I'm proud to say I made it through that entire story without making a pun on Aaron Judge's name. So you're proud of it, and I'm disappointed in you. Well, you know how much I love a pun. Well, it was also being edited uh, both both by my editor and the copy editor were both Yankees fans, so I had to be on my best behavior there. Sure. Um, anyway, uh, Haley, you're a Patriots fan. Mm-hmm. The Patriots are very well represented on my shortlist anyway. You probably remember in the late 90s and the early 2000s, their defensive, the secondary, had Ty Law and yes. Lawyer Malloy. His name oh, is Lawyer. <laughs> is that a nickname? No, that that's his, that, is his, that is his government name. Wow. That is his God-given name. I know. I looked it up because I was like, is it a nickname? No. Uh, that's his name. That's nominative determinism for you. But, yeah, but I he know. didn't end up in the legal profession. I know. His parents work. wanted so badly for him to be a lawyer. Uh-huh. but Yes. Um, so there's those two guys. Also on the Patriots, this is cheating a little bit because I'm using a nickname and I didn't want to do that because that opens up a whole other can of worms. But Haley, do you remember Ben Jarvis Green Ellis? Yes, I do. Well, you might also remember that, uh, especially in fantasy football circles, they used to call him, because he had a bunch of names in his name, they used to just call him the law firm. (laughs) The esteemed law firm of Ben Jarvis Green Elks. That was a big one for a while. Okay, I love that. That, That's really good. (laughs) That was good. That was good. Uh, Again, not exhaustive here. We now call them four persons, but for a long time, the sort of representative of the jury was a foreman. That made me think of George Foreman, the legendary sure. boxer. Been a lot of uh, there have been a lot of athletes named Foreman, uh, but just wanted to shout that out. In basketball, there was both Travis and Bo Outlaw, uh, two two different outlaws in the name. 
go in a different direction. They are not uh, part of the judicial system in the traditional sense. But you know, yeah. I'm 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 going where I can here. Also, <laughs> uh, uh, former forward from Miami Heat, Justice Winslow. He was in and out of the league uh, for a few years there. Also, back to baseball. Sorry, this isn't in any real order. David Justice, which is just one. Of, first of all, one of the coolest athlete names of all time. He was he played for the Braves and the Indians and the. Uh, uh, Yankees, and then the A's, I believe. But um, anyway, that's what I came up with off the dome. Uh, if Alex, you... I love this so much because, first of all, the list included names I didn't know. And, and that's on me as a non-sports lady, but this was great. But also, I am reading a book right now about medieval England, and some of the naming things are pretty funny about like how it follows your profession. So mm-hmm. we could re-up this entire segment, I think, about what our names should be as writers. Like, we've got some good choices for ourselves, too. Yeah, it's true. I, I mean, my name, my last name is Lawson. So, uh, and I don't yeah, really know. Yeah, you're right in this. Yeah, that's You good. are a son of the law. I've never really done, like, a, <laughs> like, an exploration of what that means. I will say, however, though, my son's initials are LGL, legal. So, oh, uh, that's, Alex. that's, that's kind oh, of wow. No. Uh, I anyway. that was- Haley says, oh, no, and I'm excited. Our reactions are all over the map in this segment. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't on purpose. We just liked the name, and I was like, oh, God, his, his initials almost <laughs> legal. Jeez. Uh, but anyway. Uh, it's so good. Uh, legal names and like- sports. That's, that's what I got for you here. So there you go. What a, what a delight to end the show, Alex. Thank you so much for bringing that. Really appreciate it. Thank you, and shout out Ben Jarvis, Green Ellis. <laughs> and Haley, thanks also for holding down the show with us today. Thank you. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guest this week, Rachel Scharf, and our contributing reporters, Katie Bueller, Pete Brush, Marco Poggio, and Philip Vance. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like what you've heard today and want to leave us a written review and five stars, That would help other people find our show. And if you want to read more about anything we've talked about, that's when you go to our website. It's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.